Well, also, if you're new and visiting us this morning, we're actually in the last uh, message of a series we've been doing, a mission series, uh, this week entitled Our Moment. We've so far looked at uh, our mission, where Dave, I thought, really excellently unpacked for us about the gospel, how we as a church want to treasure the gospel, hold the gospel as central. We've looked at our model in the local church, looking at that last magnificent church which is expressed in the local church and how we as a church want to build around the local church. Uh, Last week we also just looked at money and how in giving we have an opportunity to do something that God loves. And this week we now move to our moment and really this message is about loving our neighbours. And we're going to be looking at a very familiar, I trust to you, passage And that is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So if you have your Bibles, open them up. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 10. And I'm going to be reading from verse 25. So that's in your Bibles, Luke chapter 10 from verse 25. I'm going to read and then then pray for us. Luke 10, 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What's written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, Who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road and when he saw him he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite when he came to the place And saw him. Passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan. As he journeyed. Came to where he was. And when he saw him. He had. Compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds. Pouring on oil. And wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay to you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go 
and do likewise. Let's pray. Lord, this morning I, I pray for little old selfish me. Lord, I pray you'd help me. Lord, I pray you would help me to cast my eyes to Jesus Christ. May you help me, may you help us to be Christ-centered. Lord, may we see him. And may you help us to see our neighbors, Lord, and be moved in love to love them as you have loved us. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this morning I wanted to start by reading you an article I read this week from the Daily Mail. And it's entitled, Skydiving Instructor Saves Grandma Making First Jump. The columnist writes, In 2009, veteran Texas skydiving instructor David Hartsock was in the middle of a 13,000 feet high tandem jump with Shirley Dygert, a grandmother and first-time diver, when he discovered that neither of his two parachutes would open all the way to stop their free fall. Dygert's younger son, Joe, 30, was in the plane with above, while husband Bill, 56, elder son Will, 32, and her three grandchildren watched from the ground as a terrifying incident unfolded. A failed chute had left the pair spiralling out of control, the chute flapping uselessly as they tumbled rapidly towards the ground. Our bodies were forced together so tight, I couldn't get anywhere near the chute, Hartsock lamented. Shirley asked me what was happening, and I said, Hold on, we're in big trouble. Red alerts screamed through Hartsock's mind as he struggled to untangle the parachute lines. They fell thousands of feet, then a few thousand more. With just seconds left to go before impact, Hartsock opted to use the control toggles of the parachute to rotate his body so that he'd cushion Dygert, absorbing the brutal brunt of the force with the two, when the two of them hit the ground. Hartsock's quit thinking saved Dygert's life. While she sustained some injuries, she recovered and is able to function normally. But Hartsock paid a monumental price. The fall paralyzed him from the neck down, and he now needs help to do things as basic as getting dressed or taking a bath. Dygert, who has kept in touch with Hartsock since the accident, sometimes tears up when she thinks about the sacrifice her instructor made for her. How could somebody have that much love for another person? She said. Would Hartsock have made the same choice if he'd known what was going to happen to him? Absolutely, he says. When people do a tandem, they don't know about body position. They're just looking for a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Shirley Shaw didn't know how to do it without hurting herself. Better me than her. I just think there's something tragic yet beautiful about that story, isn't there? 
something beautiful about that precious selfless act that this guy for a complete stranger would place his body between hers and the ground resulting in permanent disability. Just a radical act of selfless love directed at someone else, isn't it? Something precious about that. Something I find just provoking about that, just a self-abandon. The thing is, as Christians, we are also called to radical love for others. But the thing about the radical love with which we're called is that it's not just a, a one-off event like, like this. We're called to radical love as a way of life. A radical love for other people. And so this message I've entitled, Our Moment, A Call to Radical Love. And there's two points. The first, a call to love your neighbor. The second, a moment to love your neighbor, but just one main thrust, one main point that I hope for us this morning, and that is this. As Christians, we are called to radical love for others. We are called to radical love for other people. So let's get stuck in. Point one, a call to love your neighbor. Well, just by way of context in Luke, as you open up to Luke chapter 10, that verse we read just before, in Luke 9.51, it says that Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem. And what unfolds is really a massive section in Luke traveling from 9.51 all the through to pretty much the end of chapter 19, where Jesus Christ with his disciples slowly makes his way to Jerusalem, where he will be crucified and die. And so we find our passage towards the beginning of this big journey of Jesus Christ towards Jerusalem. Uh, Immediate context to our passage, Jesus has just sent out the 72 have returned to him. And then, as they've gathered together, unfolds our scene. So let's read again from that, that first verse. That's Luke 10, 25. Luke writes, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That word lawyer, isn't lawyer like we might talk about lawyer? That word lawyer means religious expert. This is an expert in the law, in the scripture. This is a religious expert. And he stands up to put Jesus to the test, literally to entrap him or to tempt him. This lawyer, Luke explains, has an ulterior motive. This is not a genuine question. This is a trap that he's laying. He's looking to catch Jesus out in something that he says. And he asks Jesus a question. He says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Eternal life being a religious word, a technical word, referring to that final day, that final resurrection of the dead when all will stand before the judgment seat of God. Well, let's read on. 26. Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus throws it back immediately with a question, asking him, What's written in the law? 
And he replies back immediately with an answer that shows us that this lawyer is actually quite familiar with Jesus' teaching. Jesus had taught this, this, these two quotes from the Old Testament previously in Matthew chapter 22. It was quite a well-known teaching of Jesus. And it is, in fact, two quotes from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6.5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. And another quote from the book of Leviticus, which in Leviticus 19.18, Moses writes, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you should love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Well, let's keep reading. And he said to him, that's Jesus said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Live this way and you will inherit eternal life. You'll be found amongst those that are resurrected on that final day, inheriting the promises made to Israel. Just as a way of note, note that Jesus here isn't somehow making uh, eternal life or salvation through works. No, the person who loves the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their soul, with all their strength and loves their neighbor as themselves. This is, this is a regenerate person. This is a person who is trusting in the finished work of Christ. And Jesus says to, to the lawyer who's asking the question, he says, okay, live this way and you'll in- inherit eternal life. And the lawyer's blown away. The lawyer's like, whoa, whoa. And so immediately he says, read with me, verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, but who is my neighbor? Now, suddenly, this lawyer who came to attack Jesus and trap Jesus has shifted to the defense Once he was, or briefly before he was, looking to entrap Jesus, now he's looking to justify himself. He's trying to justify himself for his lack of loving others. Who is my neighbor, he asked Jesus. He's saying to Jesus, Jesus, put some limits on it for me. Tell me who I need to love and who I don't. Clarify for me who is my neighbor so I'll know how to live. And in some ways, it's a good question, isn't it? In some ways it is. I mean, in Greek, the word neighbor literally means the one who's near. In another sense, that passage, Leviticus 19.18, it talks about, do not seek vengeance on the sons of your people or Israelites, which seems to parallel with the next verse, which says, no, love your neighbor as yourself. So is neighbor just an Israelite? Is it just some sort of ethnic, regional thing going on? So he asked Jesus, well, clarify me. Tell me who it is I'm meant to love. Put some limits on it for me, Jesus. And so Jesus tells him a story. It's a story about a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And we're not told who this man is not told anything about him except that he was traveling. We can assume from the story that he was most probably a Jew traveling from Jerusalem. And he travels down from Jerusalem to Jericho, a a journey of something around 27 kilometers. A journey from the heights of Jerusalem about 2,600 feet 
above sea level, down to Jericho at about minus 840 feet beneath sea level. A substantial descent. And one who's traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho would have to pass through a a, a narrow valleyway, a winding track through the desert called the Valley of Adumim, which in Hebrew sounds something like the Valley of Bloods. A valley, which a passage which was littered with caves against the road and was notorious for robbers. Robbers who would hide in the caves beside the road. And as this man travels down this passageway, this valley heading to Jericho, a group of robbers find him. They strip him. They viciously beat him. And they leave him half dead beside the road. And as he lies there dying, three men come along, three characters introduced into the story. Firstly, a priest. The height of Jewish piety and leadership. Serving in the temple of God and a figure of authority and respect. And as the priest passes by, he sees the man and moves to the other side of the road. And some people speculate, they say, you know, it's because of uncleanliness, fear of touching a corpse, or, or it's because of fear of robbers that he passes by. But we're not told. It's not the point. The point of the parable is that the priest sees the dying man and does nothing to help. In fact, he moves to the other side of the road and passes by. Enter in the second character, a Levite. Levites were sons of Levi, but not sons of Aaron. And so they were priestly assistants, like priestly PAs, I guess you'd call them, serving in the temple as well. Also a position of leadership in Jerusalem. Also people of respect and piety. And it's written in such a way where we get the impression from Jesus' parable that the Levite, in fact, comes up close to have an extra close look. And he sees this man dying. And he moves to the other side of the road and passes on by. Again, we're not told why. But the point is he does nothing to help. And enter in the third character, a Samaritan. Now, we need to understand something about Samaritans. Samaritans were, at this time, the most hated of people by the Jews. Jews and Samaritans, in fact, hated one another, viciously hated. And it was over a thousand years of history between them. It started about 920 BC when Jeroboam took ten of the tribes of Israel, moved to the north and started his own, in fact, religion, the northern kingdom, Israel. What followed in 722 when the Assyrians came and wiped out Samaria, their capital, and took a whole bunch of people from the surrounding nations and placed them there. 2 Kings uh, 1724 says, And the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, Sephraviam, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the people of Israel. And they took 
possession of Samaria and lived in its cities. So you have this mixed race people who worship both the God of Israel and other gods side by side. And because of this, they are hated. Absolutely hated. You know, I was thinking about this week, what's some equivalents? And, and really there's so many because any time two ethnic groups hate each other, this is the picture that we have. Think Jews and Palestinians or Serbs and Croats or Hutu and Tutsi. This is ethnic, long-standing hatred. So let's continue reading on our passage from verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He had pity. He felt sympathy. The word there literally, it's, he was gutted, gut-wrenched when he saw this man. Affected by seeing this dying man. So what does he do? Well, read on with me. Verse 34. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, then set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay when I come back. He binds his wounds and pours on the medicine of the day, oil and wine. He puts him on his own animal, probably a donkey or a mule, which means that the Samaritan then chooses to walk himself. He takes him to an inn and cares for him. And if that wasn't enough, he then gives the owner of the inn equivalent of probably about $500 in our day's money and says, I'm coming back and if there's any more expenses, I will pay. It's emphatic. I will pay and not him, is what he says. It's a picture of profound compassion, isn't it? And I was trying to think about this this week. I mean, what's a similar thing for our current situation? What's it equivalent to? And I was thinking, imagine an American soldier fallen by the roadside, dying. And along comes a Taliban fighter on his way home and sees this guy and just is moved to compassion. Picks him up, places him on his donkey and cares for him. These two people who would normally be at war with each other, who would not be seen together, who would not talk to each other, and yet astounding compassion. Let's keep reading. Verse 36. Which of these three, Jesus said, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers. He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and you do likewise. Jesus asks, who was a neighbor? And the lawyer, he can't even say the words. He doesn't say Samaritan. He says, 
the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus says to him, go and you do the same. But the interesting thing is, Jesus doesn't even answer the question. He doesn't even address the question that was asked of him. The lawyer had come to him to say, Jesus, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? And he doesn't even answer. He doesn't say to him, this person's your neighbor and this person isn't. Care for this person, don't care for that. No, he doesn't say that. He says, verse 36, which of these three proved to be a neighbor? It's not who is my neighbor, but be a neighbor. It's not who should I serve, but Jesus says, go and serve. Jesus ends with the command. He says, you go and do likewise. John Piper, in a message of his, puts it so helpfully this way. He says, Jesus tells a story that changes the question from what kind of person is my neighbor to what kind of person am I? He changes the question from what status of people are worthy of my love to how can I become the kind of person whose compassion disregards status. I think that's right. Jesus is saying, if you're asking the question, who am I responsible for? If you're asking the question, who is a Jesus that I'm meant to care for and who not? Then you're asking the wrong question. Consider the Samaritan's example, Christ says. Now go and live this way. He refuses to put boundaries on who we are responsible for and who we are not. He refuses to distinguish between different sorts of people that are worthy of our care and those that are not, but rather calls us to a radical, others-focused Love, racial, ethnic, religious differences are cast aside, are excluded. And he asks the question, not who should I be a neighbor to, but are you a good neighbor? And he has every right to ask us this question. Because it was Christ who loved us first as neighbor, wasn't it? We were... We, We were worse than half dead lying by the side of the road. We were cold, stone cold, dead when he found us. And though we were dead by the side of the road, trapped in our sins with hearts that could do nothing but hate God, though we were spiritually dead in our sins, He came and picked us up, didn't he? But he didn't come and pick us up and place us on a donkey. He came and picked us up and carried us, didn't he? Taking our sins, not upon a donkey, but upon himself. Paying that price in full upon the cross. The most beautiful example of a radical love for others. The most beautiful example of others-centered love. And so Jesus has every right to ask us, to call us to a radical love for others, doesn't he? Because of all he wrought for us on that cross, that through faith and faith in him alone, through his finished 
work on the cross through trusting in that finished work that we might be made right with him. Radical love for his neighbors, though we didn't deserve it. Well, in summary, Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan, he rejects any attempts to try and define our neighbor, to try and define who is worthy of our care and who is not. But instead, he calls us to be a neighbor. He calls us to radical love for others. Well, point one, a call to love our neighbor. Point two, a moment to love your neighbor. I think when we consider this radical call that Christ make, makes upon our lives, it's, it's easy to feel overwhelmed, isn't it? It's easy to feel, where do I even start? It seems so burnt. Okay, Lord, that you wouldn't even distinguish between people that are worthy of of my love and not that you would open up and just call me to radical, other-centered love. I mean, where do I even start? Where do I begin? How do I do this? Well, I wanted to spend this second point examining some of Jesus' own teaching about loving our neighbors. And I wanted to look at three passages from Matthew's Gospel and just, just really listen to Jesus in these and and you can pick others, other passages, I think, other, other ways in which God calls us to love our neighbor. But I believe these are primary emphases, primary for us, in fact, moments or opportunities. And the first one, the first moment, is the church. And I want to pick a passage, uh, Matthew 25. It should be coming up on the screen, hopefully. Matthew 25, uh, from verse 31. Read along with me. Matthew 25, 31. And Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will say, and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, And you gave me food. I was thirsty. And you gave me drink. I was a stranger. And you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And, and when did we see you sick in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. Truly, truly, I say to you. As you did it. One to the one of the least of these my brothers. You did it to me. Here, this picture of the final judgment, the resurrection of the dead. 
And Christ is before all the multitude of people and he separates the sheep from the goats, those who are faithfully following Christ from those who enter into condemnation. And what is the distinguishing factor amongst the sheep and the goats? What is, in fact, the key to understanding this passage? It's found in verse 40. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You know, nine other times in the gospel, Jesus uses this expression, my brothers. And every time that he uses it, it refers to one thing. And that is his disciples. Jesus says to the sheep, as you did it for one of these, the least of my disciples, you did it for me. Christ identifies so closely with his disciples that practical love given towards them counts as love towards Christ himself. Isn't that amazing? Christ says, when you, when you love one of these, the least of my brothers, you love me. How is this possible? Friends, it's because of union with Christ. Because of the finished work of Christ, when you trust in him and his work, the Holy Spirit comes and joins us permanently to him. And so for the Christian, the one who's turned from his sins and trusting in Christ alone, so close is the bond between you and Christ that when someone loves you or when you love another Christian, another person who's trusting in Christ, Christ says, it's as though you were loving me myself. So a mark of Christians is love for one another. A mark of Christians is loving one another. John 13, 35, Christ says it himself. He says, he, he says to his disciples, this is how they will know you're my disciples, by the love that you have for one another. And yet in the same breath as we love other disciples, which is just a thing that Christians do because of the work of the Spirit, Christ says it's the same as loving me. Isn't that amazing? You love a Christian. You love Christ. You love his body. It's not a condition of receiving eternal life. Rather, it's a mark of Christians. It's a thing that Christians do. And the context for that love, friends, is the local church. And two weeks ago, we were talking about that final church, that last final worship service and how it's worked out in the context of local churches. Small gatherings of Christians, those who are joined to Christ, those who love Christ. We here at Sovereign Grace build around the local church because God is building through local churches, through the local church. And so I just wanted to this morning address us. I wanted God's word to address us, but particularly those who are finding serving in church hard. You're finding serving in church wearisome. You're finding serving in church tough. 
Christ says to you this morning, look around you. As you love these people, you love me. We love our neighbor by loving our brothers and sisters in Christ, by loving the local church, moment one. Moment two, the lost. And our second passage from Matthew, Matthew 9, 35 to 38. Matthew 9, 35 says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, here is Jesus with his disciples proclaiming the gospel and he sees the crowd. He sees the crowd and the the passage says he had compassion on them. You know that word compassion? It's exactly the same word that Jesus uses of the Samaritan as he comes across the man dying by the side of the road. He was gutted, gut-wrenched, full of sympathy and pity. And our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ, as he is walking along, sees these people who are lost and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he's moved to compassion. He's gutted. And so what does he do because of the compassion that he feels? What does he do? He asks his disciples to pray. He asks his disciples to pray for what? For laborers. That God would send out laborers. That God would send out people with the gospel message. That God would send out people to share the gospel. To reach these people who are lost. To shepherd these people towards him. To share with them the news of the kingdom. Christ is moved to compassion for these people. And so his response is to ask us to share the gospel. His response is to ask us to share the gospel. I just wanted to share with us this morning just just something of the heart I have for evangelism for this church. My prayer for my own life and and for us here at Sovereign Grace is I, I want us to be gutted for the lost. I want us to be overflowing with compassion for the lost. I mean, just this week, I was at work, and one of the privileges I have at work at the hospital at St. Vincent's is to be the privilege of being uh, with people in their last days when they're dying. And, and I was speaking to one of my colleagues um, who'd been with this, this lovely old man who's in palliative care. That means he's about to die, and they're caring for him in his last days. And, um, and this, this dying man had, had said to my colleague, he'd said to him with just this earnest look in his eyes, would you come back? 
and visit me again tomorrow. And my friend came down to me. I'm typing my notes at the desk and he just said to me, look, Brenna, I'm, what's the deal? Like, I'm, I just don't know how to feel about this. I just feel just moved speaking to this guy. I mean, I just, I just I don't know what to say. And um, it, it sparked off this real opportunity for us to talk about faith. But, but the thing I thought is, here is my friend, my colleague, um, who doesn't know Christ, affected and moved as he considers his end in the life of this man. And to be honest with you, it just affected me when I considered my friend. Because as I was writing this message, I thought, you know, my friend, my colleague, is just another example of a person who's lost and helpless, like a sheep without a shepherd. A person who's destined for condemnation apart from Christ and is in desperate need of the gospel. And friends, I pray for myself that Lord would move me more to be faithful and bold in sharing the gospel. And I pray for us as a church that Lord, Lord, would you just gut us for the lost? Would we just feel gutted when we consider the lost? Would we just be burdened for the lost? Would we be moved to sympathy for the lost? And would we go and do anything it takes to see the lost come to know Christ? You know, my heart for this church and our heart for this church is every person always on mission. I pray the Lord would make us a church that is passionate about sharing the gospel with any person who will listen. By any means. Because we love our neighbor when we love the lost. We profoundly love our neighbors when we share the gospel with them. Well, moment two, a lost. Moment three, our last moment, is the poor. And uh, I have another passage from Matthew. That's Matthew 5, 43 to 48. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good. And sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus said it's, it's more than just loving your friends or loving your neighbor and hating your enemies. It's more than that. Jesus says, look around you. Don't people in the world operate this way? What credit is that to you? Even the corrupt act this way. They love those who love them. They love those who will love them back. You know, I was thinking about this this week. I find it so easy to be generous with my friends and family. For me, 
It's not hard to be generous with my friends and family. Why? Because they're going to love me right back. They're going to be generous to me right back. But to love those who don't love me, to love others expecting to receive nothing in return, to love others who might even hate me, that I find so difficult. But Jesus is calling us in this passage to love those from whom you can expect nothing in return. Why? Because it's following the example of your father. It's following the example of the God who is the God of self-sacrificing love. You will be like your father in heaven, he says. First passage, who reigns good down on the good and the wicked side by side. Be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. Hence, the, the motivation for this love is to be like God, the God who gives to his enemies, the God who gave to those who could give nothing back in return except hatred. So, in loving the poor, therefore, we have a moment to love without expecting anything in return. In loving the poor, we have a moment to love our neighbor without expecting anything in return. You might be sitting there and thinking, you know, well, why help the poor? Why be bothered about the poor? I mean, I mean, can't they can't they just help themselves? I mean, why don't they just you know find some work and work themselves out? I mean, isn't that what we've done here? I wanted to share with you a story um, from my time in Indonesia to illustrate some of the way in which I believe the poor are trapped in their poverty. And this, this story comes from a province that we were working in called Lamtaba. And we were there um, doing community development work. And I'd been working there as a physiotherapist. And I remember sitting with uh, one woman in her home in Lamtaba. And this woman had a very disabled daughter. And I'd been seeing this daughter and giving exercises to her daughter and we'd provided some equipment for her daughter. And we'd been seeing her over a number of months. And then one day, suddenly, her daughter died. And uh, I remember... I remember sitting with this woman... um, Sorry. Who had tears in her eyes. Because she was worried she was going to forget the face of her daughter because she didn't even own a single photograph. Such was her poverty. She did not own a single photograph of her daughter. Unspeakable poverty in this world, friends. People with such bleak poverty that they're trapped. No education. No basic health. No, no money even to begin to, to find a way to, to work their way out of the trap that they're in. Completely and utterly trapped. You know, in the video we just watched 1.4 billion people. That's 20% of the world living on $1.25 a day. In the Philippines alone, 8 million people living on 50 cents a day. Friends, we are rich. 
And so I'm excited about the opportunity we have with ICM, you know, to, to support pastors, to love the poor, to love the poor with a result that will only be seen by the Lord, to love the poor without expecting anything in return, to love those from whom we won't expect anything in return, an opportunity to love our neighbor. So I want to call you, uh, call us as a church to give ourselves to loving without expecting back. Let's give ourselves to loving the poor. Well, in closing, when a lawyer asked Christ, who is my neighbor? He hoped that he could narrow his obligation. But Christ, rather, instead of answering and giving him a narrower opportunity, instead of narrowing the requirements of love, he explodes it right out and says, no, don't ask the question about who. Just go and be. A radical call to love. And we've seen three moments this morning, three opportunities we have to love our neighbor with the church, with the lost, and with the poor. Friends, let's ask the Lord to help us to go in radical love for our neighbors. Why don't you join with me in praying? Lord, I I just want to thank you this morning for this series. Lord, thank you so much that you have given us the gospel, your mission, our mission, a gospel which we, we, we long to treasure and hold dearly to, a gospel that speaks of salvation and reconciliation with you through faith and the finished work of Christ in it alone. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Lord, I want to thank you for your church, Lord, our model, our church, which you're building, Lord, you're building. Thank you, Lord, that we we, we just get to be a part of your church, Lord. Lord, I thank you that you you give us money, Lord, money through which we can we can do something that you love, Lord, through which we can we can just express our gratitude for all you are, and through which we can have the privilege, the privilege of joining in with what you're doing in this world, Lord. And Lord, lastly, I I just want to thank you for moment, Lord, our moment, uh, an opportunity you give for us to to join like you, Lord, in loving those who don't deserve it, Lord. Lord, I pray for us as a church. Lord, far be it for us to feel condemnation in this, Lord. No, Lord, I pray against condemnation, Lord. Lord, would you, by your Spirit, overwhelm us with thanksgiving for Christ. And would that thanksgiving overflow into love, Lord. And do it first in my life, Lord. Help me, Lord, to be a lover of others and not myself. May we as a church, Lord, be a church that profoundly gives our lives to loving others, Lord. May it all be for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.